Good morning. I'm Allison Smith. And I'm Bess Bittner. And you're listening to Detangled on CIUT 89.5 FM. As always, we're live in studio. Previously, we were just in the studio. Now we're live at the University of Toronto. Here's what we're detangling this morning. Canada's podcast game is notoriously weak outside of the CBC. There are few networks or resources available to prospective podcasters. We are joined in studio by two women who are working to change that. Last week, Katie Jensen and Vicky Machoma launched a crowdfunding campaign for their new podcast studio, Vocal Fry Studios. Um, Allison said I was questioning my phrase, a group of men is called a podcast. Don't you remember that tweet from yeah, like last yeah, year, Emily sure. Bell? Yeah, she was like, not sure if we can say this. <laughs> But I, I, just didn't, I just never heard it before, but I, I like it. I like it. Um, after that, when governments partner with private businesses to build public infrastructure, the project usually gets completed faster, maybe a little bit cheaper, but at what architectural cost? Globe and Mail architecture critic Alex Bozikovic is going to join us to discuss uh, his recent piece on the mediocre buildings that are coming out of the P3 funding model. Lastly, we'll close the show by speaking to Toronto-based writer Emma Healy about her new book of prose poems called Stereo Blind. Stereo Blind's out from Anansi Press, and Emma Healy is a certified Toronto cool girl, so we're looking forward to talking to her. A little bit about the show if you're just tuning in after Morning Ride. Every week we make the complex colloquial. You can follow our show on Twitter at Detangled CIUT, and you can also subscribe on iTunes to, I guess, a podcast version of this live broadcast. It's like a little bit of both. Last, uh, before we get started, I'm going to tell you about CIUT Spring Membership Drive. It is on its way coming soon. It is on June 4th from June 10th. We're going to be raising money for the station. We have lots of great prizes. We're going to tell you about one of them right now. It is a trip to Cuepos, Costa Rica. Usually we send people to Iceland, but I think there was an ice storm here a couple weeks ago. People got sick of it, so goodbye Iceland. Hello, Costa Rica. Also, we are giving away an amazing commuter bike from Urbane Cyclist. That is only available to early bird uh, early bird donors, so if you donate to the station and get your membership going before June 4th, you will be in the draw for that cool bike. I try to win that bike every year. <laughs> All right, let's detangle it. We're joined in studio by Katie Jensen and Vicky Mokama. It's a hard, hard C. No, it's a soft C. Damn it! <laughs> it's Mochama. They just uh, launched a crowdfunding campaign for Vocal Fry Studios, a new podcast production studio that will be working and, and is working with people from underrepresented groups to create new Canadian podcasts. Katie's a principal at Vocal Fry, podcast producer, and a, a very nice person. <laughs> and uh, Vicky is the national columnist at Star Metro, also a principal at Vocal Fry, and she's pretty nice too. Welcome. Thanks for coming in. Thank Thanks. you. Hello. So tell us your plans. What was the what was the impetus for Vocal Fry Studios, and what will it be, or what is it? Well, we wanted to start Vocal Fry Studios because you know we're both sort of in the podcasting world and had been doing our various things. My own podcast podcast and then Katie yeah. had been uh, pro producing but you know Katie started these pay what you can 
workshops and the very first one I sort of helped her prep and I was so excited I was like all this stuff is so key and like I was like I have a podcast and I know like most of this I don't know I guess we should plug your po- podcast yeah I forgot Vicky's to say the, the co-host <laughs> of Safe Space which is a podcast produced by Star Metro yes absolutely uh, and so you know we're going through the process of building helping Katie build this pay what you can workshop and she's showing me all these things that she's going to teach people and she's so excited and so she goes off to does the pay what you can workshop and the very next day she comes back to me and she She's just radiating. She just could not be more excited. And she's telling me some of the ideas that people had for their podcast. And they're some of the, you know, best or most interesting ideas. But because it's a pay-what-you-can workshop, it's people who are marginalized, who can't access the spaces where media gets made. Mm-hmm. And so these podcasts would never get made unless somebody showed them how to do it and told them that they could do it for themselves. And so that's what we really wanted to do is to take the energy that, you know, we both found in that first room and bring it to the industry, which doesn't really do that very well. So it sounds like you're finding great ideas, supporting people, empowering them, and not uh, necessarily looking to exploit other people's ideas and just kind of steal them and make podcasts. That sounds good. That sounds like a new approach. Yeah, (laughs) yeah, it's definitely novel. And I will say that out of that first workshop, one thing that really inspired me was that Leanne Phelan of The Secret Life of Canada came to that first day, Mm -hmm. and I met them and so many groups like that podcast idea so Mm -hmm. that's why I was so excited because there's so much potential there and you can really see it in the show if you listen to Secret Life of Canada now it's great and that's what it was when I met them it is great Mm -hmm. so you mentioned um, DIY and pay what you can so to give people a sense of the ballpark what do you think like what's the what's the benchmark for the price of a podcast in terms of you guys are talking about your crowdfunding with a bunch of equipment. Say people were able to access just space to start recording. Like, how can people start to think about um, what resources, you know, beyond the good idea a podcast really takes? Because I think that is kind of a mysterious aspect. Like how much it costs to make your own podcast? Sure. So to clarify, we're not going to be making podcasts for anyone who comes in our door. We will work with a few clients to work on specific projects, mm-hmm. but really we're just fostering a space and an educational platform so that people can come in, work with us, have a little guidance, and learn how to use the tools themselves. We're only two people, and if we said we're going to you know, work on every single project, that wouldn't be possible. There's right. just not enough hours in the day. Um, but what we're going to do is we're going to offer our studio uh, the you know we're still working out the pricing this week. We just launched last week on Wednesday, but you know essentially we are going to use our crowdfunding goals cover the cost of equipment. So we'll f- kind of figure things out as we go. But for the average podcaster, I'd say the startup costs if you're just kind of using what you can get at Long and McQuaid for a USB microphone, startup costs are probably two hundred dollars, and then recurring monthly costs if you're hosting your RSS feed anywhere between fifteen and thirty dollars. We're paying about nineteen ninety seven to to host a tangled on a on an RSS feed. So then, would people be coming to? So then, people could rent. So people that aren't your clients, I yeah. guess, can rent the space yep. themselves and yep. and bring their own equipment, and yes. then they'll be using the the studio that's soundproofed and just a good space to work in, and again, can rent it by the hour. Yes, okay. and yeah, I think uh, for a lot of people 
quality is sometimes a hindrance because, you know, if a thing doesn't sound great, no matter how great the personalities are or how great the idea is, people, audiences tend to drop off because after a while they just can't bear the, the, the feeling in their ears. Mm-hmm. And so providing people this equipment at a fairly low cost and the space at a fairly low cost, for us, we think, you know, will help. You know, great ideas go from, you know, okay things to something that really can change the landscape in the market. And I think that's what we're, that's the space we're trying to be in. Let's talk about the landscape and the market a little bit. Um, I did look up some stats. I'm great at Googling. More than 7 million Canadian adults listen to podcasts at least once a month. 15% listen weekly, 4% listen every day. Wow, who are those people? Um, You've identified this gap in the landscape in terms of people, you know, where ideas are coming from and, and who those voices are. Are Canadians listening to Canadian shows? Do they want to? Do we see that people are, are, you know, making that shift and and pushing that demand? Because it's sometimes hard to know the kind of origin of a show. Yeah, I think there's, you know, our our goal is really to connect these two people. You know, the people who are making podcasts are turning out to things like Katie's Workshop or to events where, you know, podcasts are done, like the Hot, Hot Dogs Podcast Festival yeah. on mass. And then there's lots of people who are listening, you know, anything from every day to monthly to weekly. And it's to connect these two people to say, like, you don't have to just listen to what the American or British companies are coming out with. There's great Canadian stories and content coming from here. Um, you know, the the... People do want to listen to Canadian podcasts. You know, I think the CBC is increasingly finding that people are responding to Canadian podcasts that are driven by a specific and Canadian vision. Uh, you know, the Globe and Mail did a survey of listeners, and more listeners were mm-hmm. at, you said they want to hear more about what's available in this market or around them, telling stories about their neighborhoods and regions and about Canada. Mm-hmm. Then they necessarily, you know, they they're ready to expand now. You know, it's been a couple of years of podcasting, and they're ready to hear something more more than what they're used to. Yeah, I mean, I've had this rant before, uh, like maybe a year ago, I was kind of hung up on it. But it was just the idea of like the gap between Canadian media and culture and American media and culture. Like we obviously, it's a very evident uh, gap. But I think with podcasting, we kind of saw that on like hyperspeed, right? All of a sudden, podcasting became this cool thing that people and audiences were really liking. And then you know, in within a couple years, there's these huge um, investor-funded podcast networks in America and in Canada. We're just kind of like slopping around in the CBC, and there's just very little, little out there and very little innovation. Um, so I think it's so awesome that finally, like, people are stepping up and doing it. And you guys are. I'm really excited to see what you guys come come up with. Is there a reason that you didn't want to go the podcast network route? Or is that something that might be like in your uh, medium term plans? I think that I personally don't want to run a podcast network because having come from that background and doing that for two years, I saw what that involved. And I don't personally want to get involved in ad sales right now. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's a lot of work. It's enough to just manage crowdfunding. And at the, you know, I chose this career because I'm a creative person. And that means doing the technical stuff, doing the sound design. I want to manage that aspect of the business. It's not kind of in my purview to manage the administrative aspects of somebody else's podcast right now. Yeah, and I think a network requires much more engagement in a way that I, I don't think we're we're set up for or even necessarily want to do. I think our, our 
hope is to set people up to be their own best salesperson or to run their own mm-hmm. platforms or to run, you know, set up their own networks if mm-hmm. that, that's what they feel like. Because I think we've, you know, worked in media and pitched enough ideas to God knows who, and you see how ideas get co-opted and reshaped by somebody else. And so our job is really just to set, set up somebody to be as successful as they possibly are with their idea. And we can just say like, hey, we're glad you did that. We're very happy for you. Yeah. Awesome. And what about, we were talking about, uh, before the show, your workshop plans. Can you talk, uh, tell us a little bit about what those are? Definitely. So between Vicky and I, the two of us have a really diverse set of skills. So I can show people how to edit. And having coached a lot of hosts through the process, I think we could easily both teach a how to host workshop. We really want to focus on scripting. That's often something that when I'm working with a new host, there's kind of a learning curve to learn how to change writing digitally or for print and churning that into radio, as you probably both are familiar. Uh, we also want to... I mean, maybe. I don't know. We definitely. should probably come to a workshop. No one ever trained us. We just make Google documents and show up. So... Well, pro tip, simpler is better, so you guys are acing it. Short sentences. I remember Mm -hmm. learning that one. (laughs) And uh, we also want to do some field recording in the summer when it's nice and warm, take people out in the city, and kind of have some fun with sound design. That sounds great. That sounds fun. So, I mean, podcasts starting to become a dominant way that some people are consuming information or kind of a source of news. Vicki, you're straddling both these worlds, print and and audio. Um, how do you feel about people bringing up parts of a podcast that they listen to in conversation? Like, do you think this is a faux pas or like the point of podcasts to like listen and consume something and then kind of, I don't know, summarize it or, you know, use it as a springboard for conversation with others? I'm asking because personally I find it aggravating, but I think I need to improve. I think I need to be more receptive to when people are like, I was listening to a podcast. I'm like, this is what I'm like, what? It's private. I see podcasts. <laughs> I see it as something private, but it, it's it's not unlike recommending a book. I don't know. What do you guys think? I mean, it's not the coolest sentence, I yeah. suppose, but that doesn't mean you shouldn't share things you learn. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think, I think that's why people end up over talking it because it's such an intimate thing right yeah. they were like I was in the bath and I heard this yeah. thing and to them it sounds like a very normal sentence but you're like you just told me you were naked in the bath that's this is really true. awkward now yeah. that's where I listen to podcasts yeah. <laughs> and so I think like I generally don't I'm not a fan of culture trading but I do think it like tells you just just how excited people get about a thing you know like yeah. being excited about a TV show that everybody's already watching that's fairly standard but the fact that somebody will be excited about their super niche podcast about like the history of sociology you're just kind of like oh wow, you're really into this. And I think that's the kind of energy we want to harness, mm-hmm. but I guess we should have a workshop and <laughs> teaching people how best to tell, uh, talk about the podcast they love. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I don't mind it at all. Okay. Yeah. Well, I guess CBC has that show where they're trying to, like, set people up with podcasts, like a date or whatever. Right. That's a brand new show that they're working on, yeah. Um, how do you balance kind of independent success, you mentioned kind of niche work, with mm-hmm. – um, mass market consumption. So what are the metrics of success for a podcast? Presumably you guys are going to be making some extremely rad content. Um, How do you balance kind of niche or kind of newer markets with the traditional metric of success, which I guess is like extreme, Mm -hmm. you know, broad listenership? I think it's really hard to measure the success of a podcast because in Canada, you're not really going to get the listenership that you want to get the numbers that'll pay you enough Mm -hmm. to make it lucrative. Mm -hmm. At the most, you're going to be covering your base costs if you get some small-time advertisement. Um, You know, the majority of people are not going to get any kind of listenership that Mm -hmm. will support advertising. But 
If you're in it to learn a new skill, if you're in it to see yourself improve, I've seen podcasting work wonders for people with confidence issues or people who have trouble talking in social situations. It can just make you feel more fluid and loosen up and feel more confident in your own abilities. That is a great kind of qualitative metric that you can measure by. And if you just see, if you want to track like social engagement as well, if you kind of see no one paying attention and then you start to build up a little listenership and they start to follow you on social media, that's a really cool way to track your success as well. But I think if you're just having fun and enjoying it and you feel personally gratified, I had a personal podcast for eight years and it only had 80 downloads a month and I didn't mind, you know? Well, so it's kind of like improv, but people are listening. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So can we talk about Cavern of Secrets? Because we, we mentioned your crowdfunding uh, platform. That sounds very mysterious. Can we talk about the Cavern of Secrets? Yeah, how much, <laughs> do, people we who need, don't know how much means. do we need to raise to bring back Lauren Mitchell? If that's what we need to know. Well, that's, you know, like a lot of, we said like, okay, we're, we're not going to be we a podcast say, network. We're not going to make, you know, podcasts uh, for anybody except that's not, not a paying client. <laughs> but then both of us were like, we got to bring back Cavern of Secrets. <laughs> if no one else is going to do it, we got to yeah. do it. Yeah. And so we reached out to Lauren. We were like, Lauren, what do we got to do to get you in the studio in front of a mic again? Because, you know, Cavern of Secrets was this great podcast where, you know, Lauren had conversations with some of the best writers and some of the most interesting people, uh, except the time she had me and I slagged off Mike Myers. That was the very last episode, <laughs> coincidentally. I was, the, I was the very last episode of Cavern of Secrets. Um and so we just thought, like, this is such an amazing thing, and it's bizarre to me that the market didn't pick this up. That you know, yeah. you know, publishers or you know, media companies weren't you know, you know, fl- running it, running to Lauren's door to say, how can we support this? What can we yeah, give, give you? Give her the ducats. Yeah, and so we were like, okay, let's raise, let's raise the money. I think it's a to once our crowdfunding hits about ten, thirteen, one thousand hundred. $1,013, that's when we can bring back Cavern because that pays for a producer part-time to work on the project with her and that pr- pays Lauren because we believe that people should get paid for the work that they do. And get paid well. Yeah, that sounds good. I just, hope it happens. Yeah. Just, I want, I it want will more happen. Cavern. I can't yeah. wait until it happens. Yes. Rephrase that. I think we have Lauren on sometimes to talk about Drake still. Yeah, yeah, she's our Drake correspondent. <laughs> she makes us laugh. Um, just before we wrap up, any guilty pleasures from your podcast playlist? Presumably you're also consuming and digesting a lot and definitely talk about the podcast you make. That's totally fine too. Oh, sometimes I listen to a Harry Potter fan podcast. (laughs) (laughs) What's it called? Uh, It's like part of the muggle net. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. I'm very innocent. (laughs) Okay. I'll add to that. I think mine is a Riverdale fan (laughs) podcast. I don't know any specific ones, but I'll just like log on to SoundCloud and be like, okay, what are the Riverdale Riverdale fan theories right now? And that's what I'll spend some time on when I'm just like cooking dinner. I'm God level. I've been on Riverdale fan podcasts. I wow. waited for, I've been waiting for someone to ask me on one. <laughs> Dude, I'll hook you up. I've been on Stay Out of Riverdale twice. I'm an MVP. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, listeners, if you have a Riverdale podcast, we can help you get in touch with Vicky as well. Um, and tonight at the Toronto Reference Library, Vicky and Katie are hosting Sound It Out. It's a fun an informative conversation that'll cover everything from finding a great podcast idea to hosting and producing and running your own podcast studio, much like we were just talking about now. So check that out slash it's sold out. But I think it's a, a precursor just to many up. more workshops. Yeah, just, just show up. The, it's a public building. It's a library. Yeah. <laughs> have a sit-in. Yeah. We would love to have a protest at the library for yeah. our talk. <laughs>
<laughs> Listeners, you can follow the studio at, at Vocal Fry Studios on Twitter. They also have a very beautiful website. Katie is on Twitter at, at Katie Jensen. Vicky is at V Mochama. And you can read her in the Toronto Star the, or Star Metro, I guess is what it's called now. On, <laughs> on the computer or your phone, I would say. Or in a free newspaper on yeah. the side of the subway. Facts. Great selling. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) After the break, we'll talk to Globe and Mail architecture critic Alex Bozikovic about government's increased reliance on public-private partnerships when building infrastructure and why that's resulting in a a bunch of mediocre buildings rather than architectural showpieces that we deserve. Here is Water Me by Lizzo. We weren't allowed to play fitness. It had too many swears, but it is my preferred song. You're listening to Detangled on CIUT (laughs) 89.5. Give me that sweet tea, you think I'm playing I need it all night, no sleep You can get it in the kitchen if it's sweating at the sheets Like, brr, brr, operator, you got me like, hee-hee Mike Jackson, think on, think on, think on I'm getting thick on, and I can make you boil up Baby, let it simmer
Welcome back. I'm Allison Smith. And I'm Vass Bednar. That was Water Me by Lizzo. You're listening to Detangled on CIUT 89.5 FM. We're joined on the line by Alex Bozikovic. He's the Globe and Mail's architecture critic. His writing appears regularly in the art section and in the news pages. He's the author of Toronto Architecture, a city guide, which we discussed with him last summer. That was a lot of fun. Hey, Alex. Hey, guys. Hey, Alex. Hey. Hi. So why don't we start, we're going to talk about your Globe and Mail piece about PPPs. What right. is a PPP? <laughs> All right, you're going to have to bear with me for a moment, because um, these things are, are complicated, which is part of the problem. Okay. Um, so in a nutshell, a PPP or P3 is, is a way of putting together a contract to uh, design and build and then to maintain a building or some kind of public facility. Uh, and governments across Canada, including the government of Ontario and the federal government, are really fond of these models now. Um, because they, at least on paper, sort of guarantee that projects are not going to go over budget or wind up being late. Um, that's which sounds great, right? Um, but as opposed to a, just a government-run project, which historically has been have have, have they've been expensive and, and slow before. That's right. I mean, projects you know of all kinds, from you know buildings to big infrastructure projects in the public sector and in the private sector too. To be fair, um, you know, often wind up costing more than was expected and taking longer than was expected. And so, this is a way of kind of putting a cap on that risk, which is very convenient if you're a politician who uh, doesn't want to have to deal with uh, uh, those uh, those problems. Yeah, definitely. I mean, um, coming as someone who studies studies reports on Ontario politics, P3s, I can say, are very popular. They're they're happening mm-hmm. all the time. Um, so the government's partnering with with large development companies, and then subsequently with with architecture firms, right? That right. They're they're part of the they're one of the 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 groups that get into these massive massive contracts. So you write that. Um, that the, the new East Vancouver va- campus of the Emily Carr University, uh, art, it's an art school out in Vancouver, it should have been, this new building should have been a showpiece, but instead it's mediocre. Um, and you blame that, at least on part, on the, on the P3 model. So can you tell us uh, specifically with this, with this building what happened and, and how things could have gone differently to, to create something that would have been more of a, more of a spectacle for uh, a standout art, art building at a university? Yeah, so I think because this is an art school, you know, there's an obvious opportunity to do something excellent. I mean, this is an institution that cares, you know, where people are learning about design uh, and where uh, the quality of the space is important. And, you know, and you have, you know, in the people who run the art school, you have a sophisticated group of clients who, you know, at least in theory, really care about architecture. Mm-hmm. So the problem, the biggest problem, I think, is that it was built and designed through a P3 process. Um, so they had a fairly short period of time to design and build it, uh, and the government of BC wanted this to happen quickly and really wanted it to uh, not have any hiccups. Um, and so what happened was, you know, a fairly typical sort of P3 process, which is kind of insanely bureaucratic. Um, so what happened here was that the university talked to a bunch of consultants, including some architects in this case, to help them figure out what they needed, and all of their requirements get boiled down into this gigantic binder of legalese called the called an output specification and then um, a group of, yeah exactly um, that anything that's with that kind of name has got to be cool um, so and then a group of three different groups uh, which included builders um, pension funds or banks and architects and other consultants came in to compete for this uh, and from what I understand from having talked to a couple of people involved in the process 
the three different teams basically designed the same building. Uh, <laughs> so the you know what started as this you know very bureaucratic technical process you know which is supposed to be the starting point for making a new building winds up essentially constraining it, uh, and so the university is choosing between three different very similar designs, and then the thing gets built by uh, people who have not a lot of incentive to make it interesting, not a lot of incentive to make it beautiful, but a lot of incentive to get it done on time and have it not have any technical problems. So, you know, I think what they've gotten is a building that seems to be, you know, is likely to stand up well, but is kind of soul-destroying. So you'd pointed out that most um, public-private partnerships are kind of the norm in in civic architecture. This is a campus. You know, this particular building is is on a campus. It's it's a mix of of public and private. Is part of the problem with P3s the kind of ambiguous leadership? Like that there's not necessarily one face or, you know, brand associated with it that diffuses some of these decisions. I mean, part of your piece, and we'll, we'll talk about some other buildings too, but part of your piece is also about just your kind of not shock, but disappointment, you know, wandering within the building, too, at, at how kind of poorly designed some of the, the flow is and, and the space for people who are teaching. Yeah, I mean, you talk to people who are involved in this kind of process, um, including the architects, in this case, the, the architects who designed this building, and everybody kind of agrees that it doesn't really work that well. It's so bureaucratic. There are so many layers of management and so many so many calculations being baked into every decision that it gets really hard to just have an ordinary conversation, particularly one between the people who are going to use the building and the people who are designing it. Um, you know, and aside from the fact that it is complicated, there are often rules, including in Ontario, there are these weird rules in which you have someone called a fairness advisor who oversees the process and actually stands between the architects and the people who are going to use the building and you know, restricts what kinds of questions they can ask and for how long they can speak to each other. Um, so, you know, it gets kind of Kafkaesque. And obviously, making a building is complicated, um, any building. And it's, you know, designers use the word iterative. When you're making a design, you come up with a version and then that doesn't quite work or isn't the best possible version and you do it again. You talk to people, you figure out how to make it better. And that, which is kind of an essential part of the process of architecture, doesn't really happen in these processes. That's the main thing that gets lost. So what direction do you see this going with, you know, uh, what, I guess, maybe two questions. What has been like the general reaction to this this Emily Carr building outside of, you know, your reaction and maybe the reaction within the architecture community? Is there any sense that this is like a, a tipping point of like, maybe we should kind of, you know, clean up this process a bit? Or is everyone sort of just celebrating, look at all these windows, this art building's nice, move <laughs> along, let's build five more? That's, you, say, you said that very well, because, you know, really most people uh, who have seen this building and most of the early press has been really positive. Um, I've talked to a number of people involved with the university who are really not that happy with it, but some people are. And you just really got at the heart of the problem or one of the big problems here, which is that when people get a new building um, and, you know, they, it does all the things that a new building is supposed to do, they're happy. And these days, right, and a new building is, you know, it's shiny and it's new, and these days it has to have a lot of light, and it has to have places for people to gather and spontaneously run into each other and, you know, have encounters that will generate creativity. You know, there's a kind of set of ideas that 
define new office buildings just as well as they do new university buildings. And, you know, this building does those things. It does, you know, it has lots of light. It has corridors, well, sort of. It has corridors where you, you know, are likely to run into your colleagues and, and chat. It doesn't have any corners where people can hide. You know, so on that level, you know, it seems to be okay. The problem is that we're not looking critically enough at most of the buildings we make. And the PPP process takes the people who care the most about this stuff, the people who are running the institution, the people who are going to be using it, the people who really understand it best, and doesn't give them the freedom to figure out how to do the best possible job. It doesn't give them the freedom to, to maneuver and figure out how to, to get the best result for everybody. But what about that fairness commissioner? <laughs> He's not liaising. He or she is not liaising as as they should. <laughs> it's funny too. Sorry, no, no. Just thinking about how you're describing the Emily Carr building um, out in Vancouver, and then I'm thinking of the um, Hart House building. We are at uh, also on a university campus right now, mm-hmm. and you know we have lots of corridors at Hart House. Many, many corridors. Maybe not so much light, but and lo- but also lots of places for people to hide. I would say vast. I don't know if you agree. I'm hiding right now. We're <laughs> Look at me on campus. No. Um, yeah, I, I guess something about building a campus over time, too. Um, you want to fit in buildings and, and kind of complement the broader landscape. Um, Alex, taking taking a step back, do you think there should be awards for bad ac- architecture? Are there? Um, you were also looking at some examples of excellent design by shouting out um, the Governor General's Medals in Architecture. How many of those are the result of of PPPs? Well, the um, this year the Governor General's medals are the national awards for architecture, the mm-hmm. highest awards in Canadian architecture, and most of them, about two thirds, are public projects, and zero of those are PPP projects. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so it has happened in the past that the odd PPP project has won one of these awards, but those are really the exception rather than the rule. Mm-hmm. And you see by looking at that, you know what it really takes to make a good public building. I mean, for one, the one thing is money. Money is certainly part of it, having an adequate budget. But it's not only that. Um, I look at Quebec, which, if I remember correctly, public buildings in Quebec won four out of the 12 awards this year for the best buildings in the country. And in Quebec, most public buildings go through a design competition process. So even, you know, a local library, anything up to, you know, much more significant public buildings, generally go through this design competition process. So you have people paid reasonably well to come in, present their ideas, talk to the community, figure out how to sort of alter their design and and make it work well. And then one gets chosen on the basis of what is excellent design. And then in most cases, the government, uh, either provincial or local, follows through and actually builds the thing because they've committed to the idea of the building and they're kind of bound to, to follow through. And I've seen some incredible buildings in uh, you know, pretty obscure places in Quebec that, you know, are designed by architects you've never heard of and, you know, offer in places that are not the center of the universe. And they're much better than what we're often getting in, here in the biggest city in Canada. I mean, yeah, I guess it's about, you know, choosing your priorities, right? Do we want everything built fast and cheap or do we want something that we can really be proud of? I guess that's what uh, our provincial and municipal and federal governments are going to are gonna have to decide. But thank you for drawing attention to this, Alex. I have uh, thought about P3s on a bunch of different levels, but this, is, this had not been one of them until now. Thank you. Listeners, you can follow Alex on Twitter at at Alex Bozakovic, and you can read him in the pages of The Globe and Mail. 
Next up, we'll speak to Toronto author Emily Emma Healy uh, about her new book of prose poems, Stereo Blind. Here is White Babies by Liz Fair. You're listening to Detangled on CIUT 89.5 FM. My black market white baby dealer is hunting around overseas. My black market white baby dealer brings back clean fresh white babies to me. Fresh white babies to me. My black market white baby dealer is rooting around overseas. My black market white baby dealer kidnaps clean fresh white babies for me. Clean fresh white babies for me. My smile is diamond dozen. Smith. And I'm Voss Bednar. That was White Babies by Liz Fair. You're listening to Detangled on CIUT 89.5 FM. We're joined on the line by Emma Healy. She's a writer, poet, and culture critic who lives in Toronto. Her new book of poetry, Stereo Blind, was just published by Anansi Press. Hi, Emma. Hi. Thanks for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. Or again, you were on the show once before. I, I don't think I was, I don't actually. Think so. <laughs> well... Damn it. Maybe. <laughs> You'll have to come I, on again. <laughs> I'm thrilled to be here now. <laughs> That's great. Uh, so your your book of poems that we both uh, just read and enjoyed, it is uh, titled after a, a particular visual condition. Yeah. Um, can you tell our listeners what it means to be stereo blind? Absolutely. Um, so it's basically just, it's, it's the condition of not having um, like three-dimensional vision or depth perception. So normally... 
when you have two like regular functioning eyes, your brain gets like a picture from each of them of the world and then puts them together to form one kind of like, yeah, like a picture that has like depth and dimension. And so when you're stereo blind, for some reason, your eyes don't work that way or your brain doesn't work that way. And so instead of getting one coherent 3D image of the world, you kind of see two competing slightly different sort of flat like slightly unreal versions of the world at the same time basically i guess it's on the idea of like stereo sound right where if you have mm-hmm. like speakers on both sides of the view the totally. sound is better or more full than if you only have one i guess yeah the thing i i didn't it's funny because i've i've actually been stereo blind like basically since i was born but I didn't know that that was the word for it until I was working on this book. And that's one of the reasons that I love that word is that I feel like we know, it kind of sounds like, it sounds unreal a little bit almost, because when you hear the word stereo, you think about sound, but mm-hmm. when you hear the word blind, you think about vision. I kind of liked that weird little like glitch in it mm-hmm. a little bit. Yeah. Well, and I think it's also an interesting way of thinking about poetry and writing, right? Because, mm-hmm. you know, as a, as a poet or a writer, you're sort of trying to bring together two different or many different perspectives and, and lay them on a page and, and have that translate. So is that part of the metaphor of, of the book? Yeah, absolutely. I think that, um, like, a lot of what I was sort of working on in this book of poetry was, like, the feeling I mean I feel like I've talked about this before in other places and I'm, I'm wary of like repeating myself too much and being boring but like I feel like part of the thing is I mean being any person in the world but especially there's a lot of different things that I was trying to write about in those poems like you know being a woman or being like a depressed person or being a person who's experienced trauma before where like often you feel as though you're carrying around you know several different competing worldviews at the same time and trying to reconcile them or fit them together and they don't always exactly seem to fit together and then you're kind of left with like these two different versions or multiple different versions of like how you see the world that you're trying to like fit together in a way that doesn't always totally cohere. So speaking of fitting the world together and kind of Mm -hmm. reflecting it back, you offer a, a great mix in this book of poems of the of the highs and lows of, of city living so there's there's art shows there's bed bath and beyond um, <laughs> yeah my two favorite things you're two right <laughs> um what in toronto inspires you you know what are you noticing as a you know be it stereo blind or mm-hmm. or not what's kind of charming and inspiring you that um makes it into these these poems yeah oh man um, there's so much. I mean, I I grew up in this city. I moved away to go to school for a few years, sort of in my like late teens and early 20s. And then I came back. And I think a lot of the poems in this book grew out of just how weird it was. Like, I live in the same neighborhood that I grew up in, basically, mm-hmm. which has been, like, completely wildly gentrified um, and, like, totally changed in the, like, five or six years between when I uh, when I you know lived here as a teenager and when I moved back and so I think a lot of the book was sort of inspired by walking around these places that were very like intimately familiar to me but that also were you know changing really rapidly that the sort of geography of them was the same but the the content of them was different or the architecture of them a little bit um and that was that was really interesting to me and I think it's something that sort of is happening all over the city but I also just love, 
I don't know. I love how how big and full of people this place is, but how there are also all these like quiet little secret empty spots, like the Bed Bath and Beyond thing, uh, which is like pretty funny. Have you ever been to that Bed Bath and Beyond, the one that's like on on Young Street? Yeah, Not that yeah, one. Yeah. I've never been to. It, I've but... been to Bed Bath and Beyond though. Yeah. I have some experience. That one is like always empty for some <laughs> reason, and I don't know if it's that like. Like, people must go there because it's huge and it's like still. Maybe it's a front for something else, though. I I mean, think of of Costco. I mean, Costco is a membership based warehouse. There's got to be something else going on at Costco. It's a cooperative. Mm. (laughs) Come on, guys. There's something else. Yeah. Exactly. I do like the idea of, yeah, like space being at such a premium in the city but then yet mm-hmm. somehow some a place that just houses shower curtains can can take up so much of it and, and absolutely be also at the same time largely unused totally and there's also something about i don't know there's like every time you find a space in the city that is sort of like weird or empty or that feels a little like incongruous like that like i spend a lot of time at allen garden mm-hmm. and like it's you know it gets it gets more crowded obviously in the summer but like in the dead of winter if you go there on a weekday there's like nobody there it's completely empty and it feels like this weird secret place that like exists only for you a little bit and I like that spaces like that can exist in a place that that feels so crowded and like it's constantly being you know like all spaces being like optimized for personal use like constantly it's nice to find little weird like patches that don't fit into that narrative I think well, speaking of the gentrification and, and the city changing, um, which is, I, I think, an interesting and, and maybe in some ways unique um, thing to translate into poetry. I mean, it's something everyone's sort of talking about, but it doesn't, you know, sometimes it lands better on, on Twitter and in an op-ed than you think it would mm-hmm. in, um, in a poem. Yeah. Although you did have a tweet once that I really liked. Uh, <laughs> you said, because I think we might live in the same neighborhood, mm-hmm. um, but you said, if I have to live in a neighborhood where there's, uh, it's easier to get a $50 candle than a loaf of bread there should at least be a good bar and a, and a weed dispensary around so we can have some fun or something like that which was uh very very brilliant thank you <laughs> but uh, god bless you for quoting my tweet i know oh i god. remembered it it was perfect <laughs> um no you re- true also <laughs> it is true it's way too hard to get uh a good bar in the neighborhood we'll, we'll leave yep. it at that mm-hmm. um but you also you write about landlords and, and apartment living in toronto mm-hmm. um and you know, kind of just the absurdist uh, or absurdism of of rental life in in a gentrifying, expensive city. Uh, what what about this makes good fodder for for poetry for you? Huh. Well, I think there's there's sort of two sides of it, and one is that um, like the, there's a there's an apartment, there's a particular sort of rental situation that the that one of the sort of long poems in the book focuses on, and I wanted to write about that one because it was just such a it was a situation where a lot of the, the things in that poem are real and they happened and it, it it felt like such such good fodder for a prose poem which like prose poetry often kind of rides the line between the surreal and the the real and that was a situation where like every story about it seemed half like it seemed so fantastical or it seemed so ridiculous that I found that when I just wrote down what happened it automatically read like a prose poem like some of it did not seem exactly real but then I think the other thing is it's just like I don't know it's a really interesting I'm really interested in the ways that especially in cities 
your life and the lives of other people just like overlap or bleed into each other in ways that you don't have control over. And obviously like if you live in an apartment building, you're always hearing your neighbors. And like if you live in a close packed neighborhood, you're always around other people and you're kind of getting dropped into their lives at weird points. Mm -hmm. But I think there's also like, if you live in a building that's owned by another person, and especially if you live in a building that's owned by another person in this city, like most of the landlords that I've had here have been people who like, don't really want to be landlords, but they're sort of forced to be because of their economic situation or because like they just owned a house and it was like convenient for them at a certain time. And so you end up having this really like strange, complicated relationship where the balance of power is always like shifting around and in really kind of like awkward, unusual ways. There's like this weird alchemy that happens between, I think, between you and the landlord or between like you and the rental property that you live in that is really unique and, and, strange yeah. I thought that was an interesting thing to sort of look at a little bit I agree I think it should be explored more I also think there's it's like no... both yours and not yours there's yeah exactly kind of... totally there are no like strong we don't have strong norms around how to navigate that relationship especially when it becomes more long term I think mm-hmm. previously in the city too, the landlord tenant relationship maybe was a little bit more fleeting people were moving more now people are renting for longer or have other you know expectations about you know the property that they're inhabiting and there's no like landlord appreciation day or tenant Mm -hmm. appreciation day where you can put a card in your your mailbox (laughs) for the next time your landlord is there to just be like hey thanks for you know being a pal it's a weird do you send them a holiday card you know it's and it's so intimate right like you're in their space but they can just come to your space as long as they give 24 hours notice like that's exactly and i feel like it's one of those i mean it's it's funny because i think it's a little microcosm of like there's a lot of different power dynamics in the world that function this way that are being I think more closely scrutinized in pop culture now like that that you know happen all over the place but the landlord tenant relationship is especially like one of those ones where everyone feels like they're on the wrong side of it like Mm -hmm. I think landlords often feel like they're sort of like besieged by like tenants that are asking too much of them or that don't like give them enough back or that are always like getting ready to screw them and I think tenants always feel as though you know, like most of the time you feel as though you're always like two steps away from being evicted by these people who have like power over you. Like everyone always feels like they're on the losing end of it, especially in a city like this where it's so competitive and like you're, you know, everyone always feels like their situation is so tenuous, I think. And so it's a really interesting, like, I think those are often really interesting, um, like relationships and places to examine situations where everyone feels like they have everything to lose at the Mm -hmm. hands of somebody else I also think you should knock on wood so you don't like accidentally become a landlord now the gods don't punish you like be careful (laughs) buyer beware yeah I don't know if there's any danger of that happening (laughs) (laughs) to be honest on my poet's salary (laughs) one one thing I wanted to ask you um, Mm -hmm. when when every room has the radio turned on or, or you know, uh, a character is wandering through and kind of turning them on while someone else turns them off, why mm-hmm. why was the radio tuned to CBC and not CIUT 89.5 FM? It's <laughs> a very good question. <laughs> Maybe you, you know, could consider this for a future You said you grew up in Toronto. You could have been listening to CIUT all, all your whole life. I probably should have been, honestly. Like, I feel like part of the thing of that is that the CBC is like, 
you know, it's what you might grow up listening to, but it's not necessarily the, it's not necessarily good. <laughs> I don't know, that plant guy on Ontario it. today is, he's, he's not bad. <laughs> he's very soothing, but yeah. everything else, like that, that noon call-in show, boy, oh boy, gets a little, gets a little dicey sometimes, I feel like. Don't get me started on noon hour CBC uh, call-in shows. Uh, That's that's an insider reference. Um, The last thing we wanted to ask you about was, and and you've touched on this, and it's the idea of the prose poem, which is not Uh where everyone's mind goes when they think of of a book of poetry. And I like that you you said that the form tends to... Harken towards the absurdist. Can you just talk about what, maybe just a little bit more about the format and why you chose to to go that route with this book? Yeah, um, it's always been kind of my preferred mode. I like things that don't uh, don't neatly fit in one category exactly. Like that's always just the type of writer that I've been, and it's deeply inconvenient for me career wise. <laughs> like that, I I am sort of like structurally and like subject-wise drawn to things that that don't always uh like stay in their lane exactly and the nice thing about a prose poem is it's uh it's it never has to be exactly what you expect it always looks like just a paragraph of regular text and so people approach it you know in a certain way and then you can you can mess around pretty much infinitely with like language and grammar and with the expectations of of like what reality is inside of a prose poem and with like you know what they think the narrator is doing and how true people think your your writing is you can do so much inside of a prose poem i think it's just a really fun medium to kind of play with the world you can put the world into it and you can make the world strange inside of it and it all kind of seems to make sense inside that format. It's just always the thing that I've been the most drawn to, I think. Goodbye, heroic couplets. Yes, seriously. <laughs> Whatever. The, the sonnet. That's what I say. Well, thank you so much, Emma. Congratulations on the book and, thank and coming. You so much. thanks for coming on the show. Thank you. Listeners, you can follow Emma on Twitter at Emma from Toronto and pick up a copy of Stereo Blind in, a f- in fine bookstores everywhere. It's also online. Get yourself into some prose poems this summer. Why not? Do it. All right, let's talk books. Sure. So, Vass, what are you reading? Um, I'm almost done Sheila Hetty's Motherhood. So I just bought it this weekend. Oh, I would have shared my copy, but good for you for supporting her. And I'd love to talk to you about it. Um, I'm finding it kind of maddening really? to read. So it's a book about motherhood that's about, but she's not a mother, right? That's like, that's a jumping off point just to s- describe it. It's about whether or not she yeah, should become a mother. years of weighing, of thinking about it. I guess I'm resentful that she presents motherhood as being, you know, mutually exclusive with creating, you know, art and having a, a meaningful life in that regard. And there's lots that's glossed over, like finances, you know, how to afford having a kid, the fact that her partner has a child from a previous relationship who's like a nine or 10 year old. So in a way she has a taste, you know, a a strange taste of of parenthood. Um, And I just think, sure, you know, some people are saying it's like the feminist book of like our little generation now and that, you know, it's going to be so resonates with all of us in so many ways to be, you know, mid mid to late thirties and contemplating whether or not to have a a child and it's an important question like it's a huge huge life decision but um yeah I don't know I'll I'll finish it and then then we'll talk some more what are what are you reading 
I want to make a joke about my how baby it's a feminist book of a feminist generation yeah that's from the girls uh, <laughs> I am reading I just finished reading Radiant Shimmering Light by Sarah Selecki she's actually going to be on the show not next week we are not doing a show next week because it is the Victoria Day long weekend but uh, following that uh, she will be our future guest the book just uh, had a launch at Type actually Type Bookstore on Queen Street yesterday it is about a 40-year-old woman in Toronto who keeps getting lured into all these uh, health and, and wellness sort of pyramid schemes and, and cults. Um, and I thought it was very entertaining and, and has sparked my new uh, catchphrase of the summer, which is dance about it. <laughs> Sounds great. I know. You're excited about this book and you just lent it to me. So thank you. I hope I like it half, to half as much it. as so you. Listeners, uh, we'll be back in two weeks, two weeks with that. Yeah. Thanks for listening to Detangled. We're live here at the University of Toronto every week. But as Allison said, not uh, during the Monday holiday. So we'll we'll play a past show that we loved. Democracy Now! with Amy Goodman is up next. And we'll leave you with these words by the Lemon Twigs. to know